You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today is World Oceans Day, and it may or may not surprise you that at least 14 million tons of plastic ends up in the ocean every year, and plastic makes up 80% of all marine debris. That's according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, and some say the answer to our plastic problems is AIR. The acronym stands for AVOID. Intercept, redesign, a strategy that Parley for the Ocean stands behind. Kahi Picaro, a director of Parley Hawaii, sat down with the conversation's Lillian Song to talk about his work. I'm hoping that my children get to enjoy a coastline, an ocean that is as vibrant and healthy as it was when I was a child. I wanted to get better. And I, I see the, the broad awareness increasing. But at the same time, we have industries doubling down on their production of plastics. So the future is slightly grim, and it's going to take an additional grand awareness happening for us to be able to combat what industry is coming at us with. When I went to Parlay for the Ocean's website, front and center, you read, there is no magic fix for the complex ocean threats, but there are simple steps you can take right now to be part of the solution. Also featured prominently, the air concept. Yeah. I found that quite interesting. Growing up, we had the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? So with Parlay, though, you guys are actually saying, no, let's air. Avoid, intercept, redesign. Triple R is an instrument of the oil industry. You realize that it starts with reduce, reuse, recycle. There's no refuse. The last thing they wanted you to do was to stop altogether. This was an acronym that was created by the American Chemistry Council, an organization that is the lobbying group for all the plastics and oil and chemical industries for that matter. This is something that money got poured into like crazy to put into our schools. We were all ingrained with this reduce, reuse, recycle. And then Uncle Jack made a song about it as well. So it's something that's become nomenclature for everybody. Like it's just part of our vocabulary. And it's perfect for the industry because it doesn't really reduce the amount of plastics we use. It makes us feel as though if we just reduce a little, reuse a little, and recycle the rest, then we can perpetuate the status quo. So what we aimed to do was change that and really start focusing at the most important thing, and that was avoiding. So avoid, intercept, redesign. The acronym AIR fits perfectly because two out of every three breaths that we take actually comes from the oceans. So our focus is on our air. If you avoid intercept and redesign, we can help protect our oceans. And we can also, in a sense, protect our own lives. Because if the oceans die, we die. So true. And what's going on in technology? Any new science being explored? Well, right now, we are in the middle of the Biofabricate Conference, where we are looking at biomimicry opportunities to replace plastic with some type of material that is created through looking at biology. Maybe it's through insects, maybe it's through algae, maybe it's through carbon. We're looking for new ways to create a replacement for plastics. That being said, we don't want to just replace plastics with another material that perpetuates a single-use lifestyle. Just because we replace, like in Hawaii, our single-use plastics with a compostable option, that doesn't necessarily make it a million times better. It's better, but it's better if we could reuse. And I think a lot of people are stuck in the single-use mentality. One of the coolest resources that we have right now is the Parlay Air Station at Bishop Museum. We are open from Wednesday to Sunday every single day, and we're educating people about plastic pollution. Every second Friday, we have an event, usually with a guest speaker in collaboration with the Bishop Museum's After Hours event, with live music and, and games for the kids, and it's a family-friendly event. So the air station at Bishop Museum. Oh, that's a really good resource. And exposing the next generation early, because this is a fun thing, but you've got that messaging there. And so for them, just picking up to change that mindset, what else is Parlay doing that the public can take advantage of? We've just launched the Parlay Ocean School. It's a virtual learning management system that people can go to the website and start taking classes to learn all about the oceans. And it's like going to a college, but for free. So I think this is one of the coolest resources we've launched. We've been working on it for years, and now it's public. So you can find the Parlay Ocean School by going to www.parlay.tv, and in the top, you can navigate to the Parlay Ocean School. And from there, you can start entering into the classes. These are super engaging, 
some of the biggest names in the ocean are a part of it. Dr. Sylvia Earle, she's, she's amazing. Paul Watson, who is inspiring to the genesis of our entire organization at Parlay. The founder of Parlay, Cyril Gooch. We've got movie stars, we've got athletes, we've got musicians. You know, one of our biggest collaborators is MIA. So we've definitely got the star power that helps keep your eyes glued to the TV or to your computer or even to your smartphone for that matter. So Kahi, I always knew you through Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. Surprisingly, we only learned today that you actually first started your career in real estate. My success in the nonprofit world really stemmed from a success in the for-profit world. But it took the diving into a, a corporate desk job and then a field job to really understand how business works. And in the 2009 crash of the real estate market, I found myself without a job, but with enough money to travel around the world for two years. That was really eye-opening for me. I realized that the places that I was going to visit, these places I always dreamed about, Morocco, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, were being destroyed by overcapitalism, overdevelopment, pollution, tourism. And I realized I was very much part of the problem. And it didn't sit well with me. I didn't really, at that point, make the decision to make a career change, which is something that sat in my subconscious. Upon returning back home to Hawaii, and seeing our coastlines and the place I grew up surfing being more or less the epicenter of the plastic pollution crisis in Kailua Beach with the microplastic, I realized that the legacy that I wanted to leave on Hawaii was not in any more high-rise buildings, but rather something more impactful that would more or less allow for my youth and the youth after me to uh, be able to enjoy a coastline not decimated by plastic pollution. Being someone that is from Hawaii and really only got away in his you know, late teens and early 20s and late 20s, I didn't understand how lucky we are here. And it wasn't until I got away that I realized, wow, we are some of the luckiest people in the entire world. It's a lot easier for us to reconnect to nature living in such beauty. I think it's more difficult for people that live in urban centers to really recognize their symbiotic relationship with nature. Where we're at at this point is, unless we make this reconnection, then nature's going to get rid of us. But right here at home, you know, we just finished a week of amazing work out at the Vavamalu coastline. We had close to 10 different nonprofits come together to take care of the coastline there from invasive species removal to native plant protection to barriers put in place to get the off-roaders from being able to do any more damage and also cleanups over the week removed close to over a thousand pounds of trash from that coastline that people would consider to be relatively clean. You just said Vavamalu coastline. Mm -hmm. Where is that? The Vavamalu coastline, also known as the Ka'ivi coastline, Sandy Beach, Irma's 80s, that area, the east end, where people have been off-roading for decades and the beach had turned from a golden sand to a drab charcoal gray. But now the boulders have been put in place and the native plants are starting to recover native monk seals are coming back, turtles are more abundant, and this just shows if we start protecting our coastlines, they can recover. Similar problems on the Big Island, I know off-roading. So for you, being in Hawaii, are you seeing any counties that have maybe people who get it more or where we need to really step up? How would you grade the state in taking care of our beaches, our resources? I would say if I was to grade our state, I would say we're, we're decent. I wouldn't say we're great. We're somewhere right above decent, maybe maybe good, but I still believe we have a long way to go. Going to other countries like Aotearoa and New Zealand, people freak out when there's no trash cans at the beaches there. But that's because residents understand you take your trash home with you. So I interact with our city and county staff that work extremely hard, probably not getting paid well enough and are completely understaffed. I also go to these beaches and I, I see trash everywhere. There's a lot of Places to improve. I think we need more manpower out on the coastlines to take care of them. I think DLNR needs uh, more support and power to be able to regulate the illegal fishing, the overtake of, of resources out there. Right now, like we just are finding tons of trash. We are seeing overtake of our coastal resources, and it's sad. But a lot of places are worse. So you know, it, it's it's not great here. It could be better, um, but I'd give us somewhere about decent good. When you say plastics, I think top of mind usually is like a plastic bottle, or maybe straws. In your work, I'm sure you see the wide gamut. So yeah. which is the biggest culprit? The biggest culprit for Hawaii 
is the world's overconsumption of commercially fished seafood. It's not single-use plastics. The bans on single-use plastics will not reduce the amount of trash on our beaches in Hawaii. If we want a reduction in the marine debris washing ashore, we need to stop the demand for cheap seafood. Here in the islands, we love our seafood. Yep. So when you say cheap yep. seafood. The easiest way to differentiate between local and cheap seafood is as a local going to your poke shop or food land or wherever you're getting your poke from. You're going to see two options. There's one that is injected with carbon monoxide to give it that nice, beautiful pink color. It's pre-frozen caught seafood, mostly tuna, um, that is caught by who knows what country, who knows what type of labor situation, and who knows what type of fishing practices. And then there's a local fish. That's the much more expensive, still, I think, too cheap tuna. And that's line caught most likely by our longline fishing crews here in Hawaii, which arguably is not the best either. They are usually an American captain with foreign workers working on board. So the best to support if you can is, is support your neighbor, your uncle, your auntie, who, whoever's out there fishing that you know that's doing it with just a line and a pole. And that's really what the resource is. Like we, we love our poke so much that we are importing it from thousands of miles away and then placing it with carbon monoxide to bring the color back. And, and we think we're eating great, healthy seafood, but we're not thinking about the implications of the plastic that's falling overboard, the nets that get away and, and ghost fish. What's washing up on our coastlines? It's not single-use plastics. Primarily, it's commercial fishing gear. Now, last February, we covered a story with Dr. Jennifer Lynch. I don't know if you heard about her. I know her well. Her. You do? Okay, so it was her report. Her research was saying that, you know, Maui County enacted the 2018 polystyrene ban, but in their research, they found that it had a very limited impact on Valley Isle beaches. She said that all the problems with plastic was really because of foreign countries. So what I'm hearing from you, Kahi, is that we as consumers, if we are conscious of where we are sourcing or buying our fish or seafood, we can not allow our dollars to go towards these fishing fleets, which are the major culprits of plastics in the ocean. When you say we, let's say Hawaii, we're such a small market, but we can't point the fingers to other markets to do the same unless we also do the same, correct? So yes, we can lead by example and demand less commercially fished seafood. We can support our local fisheries. We can support the long liners more, or we can even better support the guy who's going out and grabbing a couple, maybe he's got three, um, versus hundreds or thousands. Mm -hmm. um, but we can't point the fingers at other countries and other consumers if we're not doing it pono ourselves. So I would say, hey, Hawaii, let's lead by example. Let's be prepared to pay what it costs to eat fresh tuna, ahi. And from there, we can then show others this is what it takes to have clean beaches in Hawaii. I also just want to touch on Dr. Jennifer Lynch's statements. I think oftentimes the plastics industries took that as a, hey, why are we banning stuff if that's not really going to help? That's a completely false narrative. I really believe that these bans on polystyrene, these bans on single-use plastics are extremely important because like it said on the website, it's a multi-pronged approach. It's not just one silver bullet. So we have to take this multi-pronged approach at stopping plastic at the source. We're not going to recycle our way. We're not going to clean our way out of this mess. But cleanups are one of the best ways to get us to clean our beaches. Not just because you clean the beach, but because you as a cleaner start interacting with the things that you're finding and you start looking upstream. Where did this come from? And if I can stop it at the source, it'll never get into the ocean in the first place. And that's when our dollar really comes into matter, where how we spend our money. If we don't purchase it, then demand decreases. Demand decreases, supply decreases. So that's really the goal. It's is that the easiest thing you can do is just go clean a beach and start asking yourself, where did this come from? 
That was HPR's Lillian Song talking with Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii co-founder and board member Kahi Picaro. He now works with the global organization Parley for the Oceans and is director of Parley Hawaii. He manages the Pacific region focusing on education, cleanups, and working with some 33 different countries. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering resources to Hawaii's educators, including the workshop Teaching for Artistic Behaviors, open to the community, honolulumuseum.org educators. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with the founder of an education and learning app called Unruler. We'll find out how Unruler takes the learning process and makes it more collaborative, interactive, and accessible 24-7. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. It is off to the races. Now we know who is serious about running for office across the state. That's the subject of our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Level is on the line today. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, quite a day yesterday. Uh, the folks had to file officially, and it was a busy day at the Office of Elections. Yeah, there is a lot, a lot of candidates running this year, about 400. That's more than there was in 2018 and more than there was in the last election. Um, and it's going to be a consequential election for Hawaii. You know, this is a rare year where all seats in the legislature are up because of reapportionment. And we're also going to be selecting a new governor because Governor David Ige is term limited. Yeah, uh, you know, lots of opportunity for folks wanting to get into politics. Uh, but I know the way, you know, the lines, the boundary lines were redrawn. You know, we are going to see some veteran politicians up against each other. Yes, yeah, so, so reapportionment had a big impact on the legislature. Just a few interesting races I'll point out. In Hilo, Senators Laura Casio and Lorena Noy will have to score off. Uh, Harry Kim's old managing director, Will Kabe, is also joining that race. Um, in Pearl City, Roy Takumi and Greg Takayama, two house reps, you know, are going to be duking it out for that seat. And it's also created a lot of openings for political newcomers. To join the fray, and there's also a lot of you know people departing for higher office. In Kailua, you know, Bronco is running for Congress. Um, in Ewa Beach, Bob McDermott is running for the Senate. So we'll, we might be seeing a lot of new faces in the legislature in the next couple of years. Yeah, and uh, also the you know the balance of power. I mean, I know the the Republicans have a, a, always a challenge uh, getting enough candidates to run against the Democrats. Um, but, you know, there are opportunities, and so it'll be really interesting to see what happens, uh, particularly in the power structure, um, you know, like over at the House. It definitely will be. There probably won't be a huge Republican takeover, though. I'd like to point out that the GOP did field much more candidates this year than they have in years past. Their numbers uh, in the last few elections hovered around the 60s. I think last time they had 66. This time they fielded 104 candidates in the races, so they did pretty well. Uh, the eyes in the legislature, though, will really be on what happens in the House. You know, Sylvia Luke is leaving her chair as uh, her position as, you know, the powerful House finance chairwoman to run for lieutenant governor. And so there's a question of, is the you know coalition that rules the house led by speaker scott psyche is that going to be able to stay you know intact with her gone and what will things look like after the primary and, and there's even the question of whether or not psyche will keep his keep his seat in the house he's facing you know a very tough challenger in kim coco iwamoto she came within 167 votes of beating him last election so it'd be a, an interesting race to keep an eye on yeah and the lg's race as you mentioned you've got uh, sylvia luke 
Um, you've got uh, former council chair Ikaika Anderson, um, uh, uh, Laura, I mean, uh, uh, McNamara. There's Keith Almamia yes, and then Sherry uh, Menor McNamara. Yeah, and that race, you know, it's really up in the air because all of them outside of political circles, you know, kind of lack the name recognition you'd see from a candidate for governor or for Congress. And so the conventional wisdom is that this race is really going to come down to money. And Luke has the most of it. But experts will say that, you know, money isn't everything. If you recall, Ige beat, you know, Neil Abercrombie in 2014, and Abercrombie was very well funded. Uh, but, you know, Luke and the other three candidates, Anderson, Almia, they've been able to flood the airways with TV ads. And that is why money is an important thing in Hawaii. I mean, in a functioning democracy, it shouldn't be so where money is so important. But, but in reality, it is because you use that money to get your name across voters. Yeah, and with so many people jumping in, you know, we saw like the the, uh, the departure of uh, Jill Takuda from the LG's race over to uh, run for the congressional seat, vacated by Kaika Kahele, because he's running for governor. Yes, yeah, so speaking of governor, you, you know, we kind of, there wasn't any big surprises yesterday when the candidate filings closed, especially for the Democrats. We knew who the top three candidates were. We saw it coming from a mile away. Josh Green has a huge lead because he's been able to use his position as lieutenant governor to get in front of TV cameras. And the stars really aligned for him during the pandemic where he was able to use that position and his expertise as a doctor to guide the state through the pandemic. Uh, but Kahele is, you know, campaigning on an anti-corruption populist platform. He's saying he won't accept donations of more than $100. He's contrasting himself with Green in that way. Green already has a lot of backing from labor unions and the establishment. Kahele is trying to position himself as an outsider. Uh, Kaya Tano is going to try to lean on her uh, business experience, um, you know, running that laundry service that she has. So it, it, it'll make for an interesting race. We'll still need to see if Kahele and Kaya Tano can catch Green, though, in the coming weeks. Yeah. And, of course, the big surprise was uh, Duke Iona, you know, making things interesting uh, with Mr. B.J. Penn in the Republican side. But, uh, yeah, lots to watch. But uh, thanks so much, Blaze. Yep, thanks. We have been talking to reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. You can read his story on this Visit civilbeat.org. Kamehameha Schools opened the doors to its new Kikivela Vela preschool in Heia this spring amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And after just three months, a rising demand for early childhood education on the windward side is prompting the school to expand. Uh, which will be doubling its capacity for Keiki this coming school year. HBR's Ku'uve Hiraishi joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so Kamehameha Schools opened the doors to its, its new preschool uh, back in March on the former site of the now-closed St. Anne's School in Kaneohe, so uh, across uh, the street there from the Windward Mall. Folks are familiar with St. Anne's uh, Church. It's been a fixture in the community for a while, uh, Andrea Waya'u, the, the vice principal of Kiki Vela Vela, uh, says St. Anne's closure sort of provided KS with that, that opportunity to help meet the, the rising demand for early childhood education on the windward side of, of Oahu. I'll, I'll throw a few numbers in there. So Kamehameha Schools, uh, prior to opening Kiki Vela Vela, had uh, been operating two preschools, one uh, in Heia up in Haiku Valley and, and they're in Kahalu'u, offering about uh, 134 seats combined. But even then, KS says they'd have two keiki competing for every one, you know, every early learning seat in the Ko'olaupoko region with each preschool sort of adding to its wait list every year. And so Waya'u says, you know, part of what driving demand at any of, of Kamehameha schools is what, 30 preschool statewide is its model of, of Hawaiian culture-based education. When you think of Kamehameha schools, you think of that um, that connection to your pico, the connection to the aina, the connection to the place, right? And the connection to the lahui. So, you know, it allows Keiki to connect with the past, the present, and who they are as Hawaiian. Um, and when you're connected to your pico, you're more likely to be successful. 
you know, and that's been shown time and time again. So um, I think people see Kamehameha schools and they, they know that that's kind of our, our cornerstone. That's who we are. And I think that gives them the want to put their Kiki here so that they're a part of that. So since uh, Kiki Vela Vela opens, uh, its doors, Waiausa's demand has sort of um, skyrocketed from there. They've got 250, received 250 applications for uh, the limited seats out on KS's three campuses out in that region. And so in response, as you mentioned, KS is doubling down, doubling capacity from, from 40 to 80 seats at this particular new Kiki Vela Vela site uh, come August when when kids get back to school. Well, I'm impressed and, uh, if they can, uh, uh, you know, uh, bring in all those teachers, attract teachers uh, to teach those classes. No, that's right. They've got uh, six on staff plus uh, teachers plus uh, admin and and uh, Waiau herself. But and we've reported on this in the past. Uh, our, our audience knows there is a shortage of uh, preschool teachers, early childhood education teachers, especially during the pandemic. Um, I've seen here on, on the Big Island sort of a, um, a return to, to work that we were expecting from some teachers didn't exactly happen. They didn't go back to preschool teaching. They took on another job that might be more lucrative. And so the state um, was really trying to figure out a, a, a few uh, sort of legislative fixes this session uh, to entice early childhood education teachers and provide a more access to early childhood education opportunities for Keiki. Um, they've got the Act 46, which passed back in 2020, uh, which is a 10-year goal, really, to, to uh, provide universal access to affordable early learning for all children in Hawaii. And, and KS is saying, you know, this is... This is a part of their uh, trying to increase uh, their supply of seats for for Keiki. Well, you know, I, I remember early on when they started that mobile preschool. Uh, I thought that was a great idea. Mm. You know, uh, and, and well, I, I right, know we're, that helped a lot of we families. Are seeing, exactly, we're seeing sort of community-based solutions uh, uh, everywhere in terms of you know each community trying to figure out what works best for them and. You know, specifically for Kamehameha schools, they've got, they serve about 1,700, uh, yeah, an estimated 1,700 keiki at preschool statewide. And, you know, seeing this uptick in, in demand, particularly in the Ko'olaupoko region and Kane'ohehe'i and, and Kahalu'u, this is sort of their solution for now, especially now that they have, um, they have uh, St. Anne to, to Mahalo for providing that facility. Yeah, so they've just taken a, uh, uh, advantage of that opportunity of that school closing. But I, you know, I don't know if you know how much the the, the tuition, you know, how that varies uh, from other um, preschool providers. I don't have the exact numbers. KS is a private um, preschool, and so tuition is higher than than elsewhere. Uh, but they also have a, a pretty uh, robust uh, scholarship program for Keiki, not just at Kamehameha schools, but for Native Hawaiian Keiki preschoolers at other value uh, uh, institutions. Yeah, well, um, good development on that front, but thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking to HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi. To read her story on this, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Lessons learned from the pandemic, or maybe not learned. Online education, we are uh, reassessing how best to help our students, as many have fallen behind with virtual learning. Here to talk about that on The Long View is our analyst, Neil Milner. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, you, you've got uh, a, a piece on, uh, I guess, what the students think, right, about and how well parents. we did. Yeah. Well, not even so how well we did, and that's one of the little problems. This is from the Pew Foundation that does excellent surveys. This survey is excellent in what it tries to do, but what it tries to do is really kind of old news. 
but it's important to understand why because it's an, it's a way to understand where we were in regard to the to the pandemic in the earlier stages and where we are now when it's not so much about being isolated in your house and the terrible death rates, but where we're seeing some other significant problems like ones in education. So let me first say that what Pew did here was to survey uh, families, the, uh, parents and teenagers, and ask them various questions about what they did during the pandemic. And a lot of it is not surprising. Uh, a significant of, of a number, of course, were at home being educated, and most of them are glad to get back. There is some, it turns out among African-American students, only about half are glad to get back. Um, the, the differences you would expect on the basis of income, for example, and education are clearly reinforced here. The poorer you are, the more difficulty you had in coping with this for some straightforward reasons about um, internet infrastructure and some of it for other kinds of things that depend on what your parents did. Uh, people felt there was a significant percentage of students who felt that they got closer to their parents. Um, and uh, it's not a majority, but it was, you know, you hear all these stories about isolation and then being cooped up. And uh, the, uh, about 30 or 40 percent of the students didn't feel like they were really isolated. Now, where you start thinking, okay, that's a lot about what happened then. What are we concerned with now? Now we're concerned with the fact that the scores nationally, student scores, uh, including in Hawaii, have dropped precipitously. And there clearly is a chronic absence problem. And this is a significant public policy problem, not just because we have these, uh, the decline in, in, uh, in scores, but the, the, the number of people who have declined means that the way you have to respond to this are probably very different. It doesn't involve just a couple of tutors. You get a little sense of this in the survey when they ask people how worried they are about whether they're falling behind. But saying that they're worried about falling behind, and it's a significant minority that says that, is not the same as trying to get at what the issues are now. If you're a school superintendent now, or if you're a Hawaii politician, if you're a parent, it's nice to know maybe how it was in the past and how well you did. But now it's how can we get kids' scores back what do we do to bring a significant number of students in Hawaii, the average, I think, of chronic absence uh, is about 20%. In some cities, it's considerably higher. The figures I saw in L.A. was that it's almost half. That, that's students who miss a certain amount of time over the semester. That's a whole different kind of thing. You can't get that kind of information from asking people in a survey how they did or how they're worried. That has one kind of information. It's nice to know that because if there ever is another pandemic, we know what we have to watch out for. We know even more if we didn't know it in the past how much inequality affects this kind of thing. But to get at the public policy issues of how do we get back on track is different. Yeah, I mean, you want to engage the kids. You know, I mean, we saw lots of teachers who were distressed because a lot of kids during the pandemic didn't log in. And they had like, sure. you know, w where are you kids? You know, what are they doing? Are they playing video games in the back room? Or, you know, they should be here in the classroom and learning and interacting. And, and you know, even now, uh, if, if the kids aren't going to class, it's like, how do you get them back in? No, no, no. I mean, it's interesting, the different kind of experiences. My granddaughter they were in the process of moving from uh, from Brooklyn to Portland, Oregon. They just enrolled her online in the Portland schools before they ever got there in what would have been her neighborhood school. She didn't have any problem. I'm not talking about, this is not grandpa bragging about her. It's because they had all kinds of other things going for her. They had parents who had the time to help. Uh, parents are, are certainly not in the, you know, in, in uh, economic difficulty. But even, you know, even this nine-year-old said, there's a lot of kids who just are, you know, they come online and then they're gone, you know, just gone for long periods of time. So that's carrying over now. 
Right before I, I uh, came in to do this, I was reading a piece today in the Brookings Institution where they're essentially saying, you know what's happened? The Republicans have gotten nationally the total control of the education agenda by talking about what is essentially culture war issues, transgender, uh, critical race theory, parents' rights, and who gets to control when you have a whole other set of things out there that have to be done, like I just said, the Republicans aren't, you know, the, the Republicans are making hay with, the, with these cultural issues. The Democrats really aren't saying very much. They're just kind of laying back and, and, and not saying anything. Now, that's a bit unfair to Democrats because these are hard problems. But the agenda has focused so much on these kind of critical race theory stuff when you have this whole other thing that are uh, that's important. And what about homework? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, homework is an interesting thing because there really are two schools of thought about it, about uh, how much ho- you, do you have more homework or do you have less homework. And the less homework argument is not about, you know, wishy-washy stuff. It's about where you should do your work and you, where you should do other stuff. But all of those kinds of questions depend, first of all, on can you get your student body back on track? And don't forget that the, the, the most precipitous drops in scores were by the people who already had trouble. So if you look here at, um, Asian, at Pacific Island students who weren't doing very well, they're doing even less well now. And, you know, the issue of access to whether it's broadband and, you know, laptops. I mean, we saw here uh, locally where the counties were like, okay, we know we've, you know, we've got dead spots in Hana and, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, they, and, and folks tried to, you know, really tackle that problem. Um, but well, I think people did a remarkable job of tackling the problem. I was surprised at the percentage of... Uh, students in the survey that had access to computers. Uh, you know, that, that's gotten higher. But it's a combination of a lots of things. Part of it is just technology. How good is your internet access? How good is your bandwidth? Part of it is the availability of time in your house and the kind of help you can get. If you've got two working parents that are working in, you know, in high-risk times out there, and some of it is just the kinds of values that have been ad- developed over education over time. And all of those things, which have been issues in the past to some extent, manifest themselves now in what we see that has happened, this kind of uh, uh, reduction. Some people say it's a lost generation. That's kind of rhetorical overkill. I don't think we know. But as if it's not hard enough to educate at K-12, the challenge now is even more daunting. Well, I know this study really looked at uh, um, high schoolers, um, older students, but I know I was struck by a principal who said there are a lot of kids in the in kindergarten this is the first time they've, you know, come in the classroom. They've been just v- visiting online. And, sure. And, and so that's a, that whole yep. social thing is fascinating. But thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. We have been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, uh, for our biweekly segment that we call The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, a member-based community for ages 50 and older, with a variety of courses in its summer 2022 online catalog. More by searching Osher Hawaii. If you've got fresh ideas on how HPR can serve our islands, consider applying to join our Community Advisory Board. We're looking for diverse perspectives from across all islands, The feedback we receive from our advisory board helps us shape programming, events, outreach, and the future of HPR. Apply by June 30th at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, now hiring occupational safety and health compliance officers, environmental health specialists, and advisors. labor.hawaii.gov slash jobs.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And this week's Manu Minute is a showstopper, the peacock. You'll easily recognize these magnificent birds on site, but are you familiar with their song? We've got that for you today, thanks for the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's your Manu Minute, University of Hawaii Hilo biologist Patrick Hart. Male Indian peafowls, or peacocks, are among the most recognizable birds in the world. Native to southern India and Sri Lanka, they were first brought to Hawaii in the mid-1800s, and peacocks and peahens have now become established on all the main Hawaiian islands. They can live in a variety of habitats, including neighborhoods, parks, and woodlands, and with their omnivorous diet, eat a range of foods, including fruits, grains, insects, and even small vertebrates like lizards and koki frogs. In addition to being so visually unique, the songs of peacocks are also very distinctive. Many people in Hawaii have heard their song, even if they may not know it was a peacock making it. The reason why peacocks have such massive, iridescent, and beautiful tails has been a source of wonder for centuries. We usually assume that most characteristics of animals have evolved to make them better adapted to surviving in their environment. But how could such a large, showy tail improve a peacock's chance of survival? Even Charles Darwin, after publishing his theory of natural selection, famously said that looking at a peacock's tail made him sick because natural selection could not explain it. This over time led him to propose a second theory known as sexual selection, which is now widely accepted and holds that showy ornaments on animals, such as the peacock's tail, have evolved through selection by females. In other words, females choose those males with the largest, prettiest tails, and those are the ones that pass on their genes to the next generation, while the males with the less showy tails may get no matings at all. This often happens in mating arenas known as lex, where multiple males all come together in a group competition to show off their tail ornaments to choosy females. Over time, the tails evolve to be showier and showier because that's what the females want. Peacocks are known as pikake in Hawaiian, and they have an important connection with Hawaiian royalty. Princess Kaiulani was so taken by the birds, she became known as the peacock princess. When a new sweet-scented species of jasmine flower was imported to Hawaii, Kaiulani fell in love with that as well, and named it after her favorite bird. Pikake are still one of the most common flowers for lei across the islands, and it's said that the night Kaiulani died in 1899 at the age of 23, her peacocks screamed so loud they could be heard for miles away. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. Humorist and novelist Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Clemens, is best known for his adventures in Middle America as told to the characters of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. So when he set foot in the islands, what was he struck by? Well, the book we are highlighting today is Mark Twain's Hawaii, a humorous romp through history. It's based on his letters home and through accounts from those who knew him. Maui author John Richard Stevens developed, well, you could say an obsession about the American author and discovered another dimension of the islands while researching the book. Uh, Stevens talks about the journey that Twain took him on. I knew of some rare material that, I, as far as I knew, hadn't really been published where people could find it. And I figured there had to be a lot more. So I just started doing tons of research, which is something that I'm really good at. And I dredged up everything I could find on him related to Hawaii. So I massed together a large amount of information. Those books, they form a large part of my book, but there's so much more material, and there's a lot of material written by people that had met Twain, so you get kind of an outside perspective of what he was like and what he was doing. 
he wrote things all out of order. So you can't really, reading those other books, you can't tell where he was at, what he was doing. So I wanted to take everything apart and put it all together in the order that he experienced it. So I go through day by day, and I list all the dates and tell what he was doing on those days and have what he wrote about for those days. And so now you can see exactly where he was and what he was doing, where he was going, which makes it a lot more interesting to go to some of these spots where you can look around and say, you know, this is where Mark Twain was. You know, he was right here. I can go up into the town of Wailuku or Lahaina on Maui, and I know that he rode his horse right up the street. <laughs> so I find that really interesting. So you chose to call Maui home, and yeah. I imagine, you know, when you started kind of retracing his steps, that that was discovery for you as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. My wife and I are really fascinated with Hawaii and its history, so we did a lot of exploring before I started working on this book. So it was kind of like bringing two things together that I loved. You know, I love Mark Twain's writings, and I love Hawaii, so bring them together just seemed like the perfect thing for me. And getting out there to explore some of the, the things we hadn't explored yet was also really interesting. So it sort of gave us a, another perspective on some of these areas that we hadn't previously been to. I mean, I can see people picking this up, you know, and reading this on the airplane or on the on yeah. the cruise ship uh, before they, you know, touch ground in Honolulu or whatever island they're visiting, uh, just because it, it takes you back to a different time. But then you can just imagine what he was feeling and experiencing as well. He was practicing a lot of different types of writing. He wrote a series of 25 letters for the Sacramento Union in California. And so he was doing business writing, but a lot of it was travel writing, and, and some of it were just humorous pieces. So there is a lot of Twain's personal feelings and impressions. You know, at that time, you didn't get much of that in reporting unless it was travel writing. But he was expanding it out and sticking it into his business letters. It was sort of like Hunter Thompson's Guns of Journalism. Mark Twain was doing that long before Hunter Thompson and making himself one of the main characters in his own writing. And sometimes it wasn't really him. It was like a character he created. And sometimes he split himself into two characters where he'd have two aspects of himself arguing back and forth for the humorous effect. So he'd have the one side of him that loved the romantic idea of Hawaii and the other side that was totally practical and talking about how he hated the, the centipedes and things like that. What was it that drew you to Samuel Clemens, to Mark Twain? Because you really immersed yourself in his work. That sort of grew over time. This is my 23rd book, and more than half of my books have Mark Twain in them to some extent. And so I've been reading through his work for a long time, and I really enjoy it. And I do like his sense of humor. Do you have a sense uh, of humor about living me? here? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they they do the same thing over there on Maui like they do over here in Honolulu, but everybody seems to have this need to back in their cars into parking spaces. Things about just everyday life in, in Hawaii that yeah. drive people crazy, but, you know, endears the place to us. <laughs> yeah, I like the way uh, one author put it, uh, that in Hawaii, people think it's stylish to drive with one foot out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a little different here, but it's it's part of the character of the place. It makes it really unique. I just love it here. Is there anything that surprised you? I mean, you've written, you know, so many books about him. There's a lot that I didn't know. You really get a personal view of what he was like that you don't get from a lot of his other writings. And you can read Tom Sawyer, you can read his autobiographies, but his personality really comes through in this book because I've been able to find these little anecdotes and pull them all together that, that give a good idea of what he was like. And of the places that he visited that uh, you went to, any other stories that you can share just about what you were struck by? He was all over Oahu. He spent most of his time there, and he wrote a, what they call the Ride Around the Island, which was 
pretty much around the eastern end of the island and up through the middle. And he rode out to the west side. But a lot of what he writes about is around Honolulu area. There was all kinds of things going on. Was it difficult, you know, with the, the photos that you chose, getting the permission to, to uh, publish them in the, um, in the book? So I get stuff that is either public domain or most of the pictures I took myself. The maps and graphics and stuff I made myself. So unfortunately, they don't appear as nicely in the printed book because of the printing quality. They shrank the maps down, so mm-hmm. they're kind of hard to read, and they're in black and white. Whereas if you get the ebook, you got the large maps that are all in color. All the photos are in color. Oh wow! And so the ebook actually is nicer in a way, but the hardcover book is really nice in the way it's made. And you know, a lot of people prefer reading books. So if somebody wants to follow in his footsteps, I would recommend getting both because. You've got the one that's easy to look at in book form, and then you have the other that has the good maps and the good photos, and it's portable. You know, you can just carry it on your phone when you're going to these places. That was Maui author John Richard Stevens talking to us about his new book, Mark Twain's Hawaii. It's distributed by the National Book Network through Two Dot and the Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Well, we have to go now. Tomorrow, we'll continue talking to Hawaii authors. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, and email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find all of our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.